We're up to chapter 2, Mishnah 19. This is the third to last Mishnah in chapter 2 of Pertriavos. We'll read it quickly, and then we'll go into a little bit of the character of Rabbi Elazar and try to glean some of these lessons. So this is the final, the fifth of the students of Rabbi Yochum Zakai and their own teachings. Rabbi Elazar Omer, Rabbi Elazar says, Have a lil Torah. Be diligent in studying Torah. And know what to answer a heretic. And know before whom you toil. And trustworthy is your employer. He's going to pay to you the wage of your labor. So this Rabbi Elazar, it's a little confusing because there's a lot of Rabbi Elazars in the Talmud. In the Talmudic literature, this is Rabbi Elazar ben Arach. His father's name was Arach. And if you remember a few Mishnahs ago, when Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai sent the students on a mission, go find what's the best path, what's the worst path. He was also evaluating the skills and character of each student. So his favorite was Rabbi Elazar ben Arach. In fact, he characterized him as a ma'ayana misgaber, which means an overwhelming spring. He had so much Torah, he was like bursting with Torah. And in fact, he even said that if you take all the sages of Israel and put them on one side of a scale and put Rabbi Arach on the other side of the scale, he would outweigh them all. And when each one of them came back to him with his findings, what's the best path to seek in life? What's the worst path to seek in life? Rabbi Yochum agreed with Rabbi Elazar, Rabbi Elazar ben Arach, that he was correct, that the best path is a good heart and the worst path is a bad heart. Now, there's another interesting episode on the Talmud relating to these students of Rabbi Yochum Zakkai and the, the teacher, Rabbi Yochum Zakkai himself. Uh, a tragic episode happened where the son of Rabbi Yochum Zakkai died and all the students came to visit him, came to visit the Shiva house to try to comfort their teacher. And it tells of all the students, they came in, what they came in, what they said to Rabbi Yochum Zakkai and whether it worked. So first, Rabbi Lezer came in and said to him, okay, I want to tell you something. May I I have the permission to tell you my thoughts? And he says to them, yes. He says, well, Adam had a son, and Adam's son died. And he proved from Scripture that Adam was able to accept comfort after his son died. And therefore, I'm encouraging you to accept comfort after your son died. That was his take, trying to to help his teacher who was mourning. And it didn't work. Rabbi Yochum Zakkai told him, now I'm even sadder. Previously, I was only sad because of my son. Now I'm sad because of my sadness and because of Adam's sadness. The next student, Rabbi Shua, walked in and says, I want to tell you something. Oh, go ahead, say what you want to say. And he quotes Job. Job had many children and they all died in one day. Yet Job was able to accept comfort and he quotes that, quotes the verse in, in the book of Job that he was able to be comforted after this tragedy happened to him. He says, well, you, should, you too should accept comfort from your, from your sadness. And he says, no, now I'm even sadder. Previously, I was only sad for my son, and now I'm sad for my son and for, and, and for, for Job. And the next student came in, same thing. Aaron had two sons. They died. He was comforted. You should be comforted. Doesn't work. Now I'm sad for me and for Aaron. The, th- the, the fourth student came in and said, King David, 
He had a son. He died. He was comforted. You should be comforted. Now I'm doubly sad. I'm sad for myself. I'm sad for David. Finally, Rebluzzer comes in. And when he comes in, everyone like kind of stiffened because like he, he's the greatest of the students, or at least he was at the time. And he says, okay, I want to tell you something. And I want to give you an analogy. The analogy is you have a king who gives a very precious item to one of his constituents to watch, to guard, to safeguard. The whole day, all night, for weeks on end, the person is screaming and crying, when will the king finally take back his item? Because I'm so nervous watching it, I have such a responsibility. What happens if I mess it up? What happens if I ruin it? It's terrible, terrible responsibility. It's such anxiety, I'm watching the king's thing. And finally, the king comes and says, okay, I'm taking it back. It's tremendous relief. Similarly, the Almighty gave you a child. But really, it's still the soul of the child belongs to, to God. You're just the watchman. And your job is to safeguard it. And now that your son died, but he was righteous, you gave back the item unblemished to the king, you should be comforted. And that indeed worked. Rabbi was comforted by this angel by telling him, okay, of course it's sad and there's no way to avoid the sadness, but there's a little silver lining in knowing that you did your job in safeguarding the item that the king gave you, that the Almighty gave you to watch. And then it goes on to talk about what happened next because there was a split. Rabbi had all the students and most of them decided to move to the city of Yavna. Whereas the greatest of his students, at least at the time, the greatest students decided to make a different trip to move to a different city. And in fact, one of the sources says that he was following his wife's advice. And he ended up in a different city that was a much wealthier city. It was a much more economically advanced city. And he was hoping that all the students would flock to him. After all, he's the greatest disciple of Rabbi Yochum the greatest candidate to be the next leader, and all the students would follow. That's what, that was his calculation. Whereas the rest of the, the, rest of the students of Rabbi Yochum said, no, 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 the, 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 the outpost of the rabbis in the city of Yavne, we're going to go join the sages. And this great sage, Rabbi Elazar ben Arach, he ended up on his own in an island with no other scholars around him, just surrounded by people who were not of that same caliber than the students, his colleagues that he had with him previously. And uh, the Talmud says that his plan, his grand five-year plan to have all the people come join him, it didn't really materialize. And in fact, he was so bereft of good companionship that he started to forget his Torah learning. And the Talmud says in the book of Shabbos, page 147b, that he was drawn to the ways. He was influenced by the people that he encountered and he started forgetting his studying. And when the rabbis came to visit him, they said, okay, why don't you read to us from the Torah? And he started reading it, but he mispronounced a bunch of letters. Instead of saying, ha-chodesh ha-zelachem, which, which means this month is for you, he said, ha-cheresh ha-yalibam. He misread the words because the Hebrew letters are very similar. And... The rabbis were so distraught. This great sage that we had, our great colleague, he's now 
forgetting almost how to read, forgetting his Torah, they made a massive convention. They all prayed that his Torah should be restored. And one of the sources says that the great Elijah the prophet appears to him and taught him all the Torah. And he once again rejoined the fold of his students. And in fact, the Talmud says something interesting, that he has another nickname in the, in the Talmud. And that's Rabbi Nehorai. Every time it says Rabbi Nehorai, it's a whole question, who is this Rabbi Nehorai? According to one opinion, it's Rabbi Meir. According to the second opinion, it's this Rabbi Eliezer. Rabbi Eliezer. And it says, why is he called Nehorai? The word, like, uh, the word stems etymologically that uh, with light, the heat enlightened. He was such a great scholar, he enlightened all the eyes of the sages. And later on, in the book of Perkei we're going to read a teaching from Rabbi Nehorai. And he's going to tell us, I don't want to spoil it, but it is relevant to his batch story. He's going to tell us, you should take exile. When you, when you have to move, move to a place of Torah. And don't say that, oh, I'm going to go to a different place. I'm going to pitch my tent here and the Torah will follow me. Don't be so secure in your, in your ability to draw students to you because it might be that they won't follow and then you'll be alone, stranded on a spiritual island. That's an uh, interesting kind of tragic story. Uh, ultimately, of course, uh, he did rejoin the fold, but he could have been the, the next, next great leader and he did not become that because of some very important decisions that he made. The first thing that he tells us sounds kind of self-explanatory, sounds like very good advice. Be diligent in Torah study. It's one of the things that is the one activity that's lauded above all, studying Torah, uh, studying it regularly, studying it intensely, being very diligent about it. And one of the commentaries points out is that there's always going to be some aspect of someone's life, or hopefully there's, there's, there's likely to be some aspect of someone's life where they put their most into it. You know, they invest, they're all in on it. And here we're told that that should be Torah. I remember I was once, um, I was a tutoring, when I was a teenager, I was tutoring a student in a, in a yeshiva. I was I was in the Mir, Mir Yeshiva in Jerusalem, and he was in a different yeshiva in, in, in Jerusalem. And they hired me for to tutor him. And I remember it was the most frustrating experience because his mind was everywhere but in the Talmud tract that they were trying to study together. And like, it, and it was hard to. I was like, I felt like I was talking to a wall. Like, it was, he was like not interested and was would not was not getting it. Totally not in there. And then we had also a baseball league. There's a baseball league in, in Jerusalem, and every every you know group of ten people they make a team and they join the leagues and fine. So I was part of a team from students in my yeshiva, and he was part of a team from students from his yeshiva. And then I remember we played against them, and he was so into it. He was so like consumed with vigor playing the game. He was running the bases. I just remember like that. Like, and it kind of struck me like he was someone who really invested a lot of his energy, like his focus was on the baseball and not on the Torah. So, of course, he wasn't able to give it his own. His mind was totally elsewhere. He was diligent in other things, not in Torah. Here we're told that there's kind of, there's the, if we have to allocate, our, or we do have to allocate our resources, our mental faculties to, to things in life, try to give Torah, like invest our diligence in this area, because this is really why we were created. We were created to toil, specifically to toil in Torah study. That's the first thing. The next thing we're told is to know how to respond to the heretics. And if we study um, some of the episodes in the Talmud, it's interesting to see that the great sages of, of Jewish history 
were quite adept at debating and engaging in polemics with heretics of their time. And in fact, if you're interested, a brief plug, I did an entire episode on the Jewish History Podcast channel dedicated, uh, it's called Rabbis and Romans. It's when the Romans would engage the rabbis in debate. So if you're interested, I went through many, many examples that we see in the Talmud and Talmudic literature where the rabbis were forced into debate with the Romans. So for example, I'll give you one example. The Talmud in the book of Baba Basra on page 10a, it quotes a Roman, Roman nobleman asking the great Rabbi Kiva a question. He says, the question is, your God, you say that he loves the poor people. Torah says that. But if he loves the poor people, why does he make them poor? Why does he make them rich? That's his question. It's kind of a theological dilemma. It's a good question. Does God love poor people? Yes. Well, why does he make them poor? Why does he give them enough to sustain themselves? So Robert Kiva answers, well, the reason why God made poor people is to allow everyone else to give them charity to save them from Gehenna, from purgatory. That's why. So the Roman nobleman responds, no, 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 to the contrary. If God makes someone poor and you say, you know what, I have a better idea. I'm going to make him rich. I'm going to give him enough to sustain himself. Well, you're counteracting what God wants because it's almost as if the king has a slave or has a servant and he wants to put him in solitary confinement with no food. The king decides to punish the slave and comes along some do-gooder and he says, you know what? I'm going to slip him food. What's the king going to do? The king's going to punish him. I wanted to punish him. And you are intervening in my judgment. And then he says, quotes a verse. The verse says that the Jewish people are like servants of God. The verse in Leviticus 25 55, the Jewish people are like servants to God. And therefore, if Jewish people are servants to God, and God says this servant will be poor, and you say you want to give him money, then you're going to be punished because you're counteracting God. Obviously, the Roman was quite slick in his debating skills as well. So Arkiva responds, no, you got it wrong. Imagine there was a king who decided to punish not his servant, but his son. And he put his son in solitary confinement and withheld food from him. And then there was a do-gooder who said, I'm going to give him food. What do you think the king is going to do when he finds out? He's going to reward the person who fed, who fed his son because after all, he wants to teach his son a lesson, but he doesn't want him to starve to death. And he quotes the verse in Deuteronomy, The Jewish people are like, are like sons to God. That's like one example where you have the heretic who's trying to corner the rabbi and the rabbi knows how to respond in a, in a, in, in a victorious way. Uh, now, uh, one of the commentaries points out that there's a certain connection between the first and the second clauses of the Mishnah. The first clause is study Torah, which means like Torah is, 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 the, is knowledge of God. It's the ultimate truth. And then it says, know how to respond to the heretics, which is more like banish falsehood. And that like kind of that, that duality on the one end, embracing the truth, on the other hand, rejecting falsehood is going to create 
this this perfect world, this Tikkun Olam, that is the objective of Torah. The Mishnah is precise in its usage of terms. It doesn't say, respond to heretics. It doesn't say, engage them in debate. It says, know what to say if you are forced to engage in a debate. You have to cleanse yourself. You have to be, you have to personally be able to answer the questions, but you don't necessarily have to answer the questions. And it is interesting that the Romans, they actually established a debate house. They have, they used to have stadiums where they would have theological and philosophical debates. And in fact, they would compel the Jews to participate. And in fact, there was one episode in the Talmud where the Roman Caesar starts berating the great rabbi, how come you didn't show up to Be'avidon, to this stadium to have a debate? You were invited and you really, you weren't supposed to reject the invitation. And he had to come up with the whole excuse of why he didn't show up. This does imply that when the rabbis did engage in debates, that was only because they were forced to. They were given no choice. They couldn't opt out, which is why there are so many debates between rabbis and Roman Caesars. I'm sure there were Roman theologians who had no power, who would love to try to wrestle theologically with the rabbis, but the rabbis say, I'm not interested in talking to you. I don't benefit from talking to you. What do we have to gain here? The rabbi, of course, knew the answer. He knew how to respond, but he didn't actually respond. Where the Roman Caesar comes and says or implies, either answer the question, engage the debate, or I will cut off your head, under those circumstances, you are obviously compelled to display what you know. Now, it's interesting. The Talmud says something very important. It says that you're actually forbidden to argue with a Jewish heretic. With a non-Jewish heretic, you can argue. With a Jewish heretic, you can't argue. Why not? After all, if there's a Jewish heretic, all the more so we want to encourage him or her to come back into the fold. So why wouldn't we engage in polemics with the Jewish heretic? Atabas says something very interesting, kind of like a psychological idea, that if you engage in debate, it's not necessarily so that your opponent will say, you know what, I hear what you say, I'm changing my position. To the contrary, they're likely to dig in to further entrench themselves in their position and convince themselves more that they're right, even though you prove to them quite logically that they're wrong. So the end result will be that they will be further entrenched into their heresy, and of course you don't want to do that. Maybe if someone is a spectator in the debate, they could really tell who's winning, and therefore it's beneficial for them. They see you win, and that's a good thing. But there is a potential with the opponent that you're going to cause them indirectly to be further ensconced in their ways of heresy. And of course, you don't want to do that. Therefore, the Talmud says you should not uh, you should not do that. And additionally, the commentaries also point out that there is a danger for yourself. Let's say you're not fully adept at doing it. And you know what? You don't know the answer to the question that's posed to you. There is a very sufficient answer. Maybe there's many sufficient answers, but not everyone knows all those answers. And therefore, there is a concern a, of you not knowing and you thinking that your side is wrong when they're really right. And B, you having exposure to heretical materials 
And that could cause a problem because you may be drawn after them, which is why the position is to know, to know what the answers are, to learn the responses, but not necessarily to employ them, not necessarily to engage in debate. And finally, we're told you have to know before whom you're toiling and you could trust God to pay reward, uh, ample reward for your efforts. Again, this is telling us is that really we're supposed to invest our life in studying the word of God and bringing truth of God to the world. Essentially, God's saying, hey, you may have a business that could be very intellectually demanding, but you know what I want to be even more intellectually demanding? Your Torah study. And you say, wait a minute. You know, the, the, the fruits of my labor, where, my, where, where are the fruits of my labor with respect to my efforts here to study Torah? God says, you know what? No before you're toiling. If you're going to toil in this, I got your back. You can trust me. I'll pay your wages. I'll cover your expenses. That's what he says. And now it's interesting if you compare this. The commentaries uh, ask, if you compare this to the beginning of Perke Avos, the very, th- the very third mission that we studied, we met Antignus, the man of Soko, who told us, don't be like servants who worship the master with the intention of receiving a reward. We should worship God without the intention of receiving a reward. That should not be our focus. So here we say, well, rely on God. He'll pay you back amply for your efforts. So the answer is, is that, yes, of course, the purpose of our hard work, the objective should not be the kickback that we get from God. But this is a nice thing to go along the way. It's a, it, your efforts, of course, ultimately, it's about the spiritual benefits that you're going to garner from it. But it's also comforting to know that you're not necessarily forfeiting everything here. God has got your back.